This is Conducting Business. I'm Naomi Lewin. In the last week, not one but two top violinists have been paid a visit by the repo man, so to speak. Frank-Peter Zimmermann is being forced to give up his 1711 Stradivarius just days before soloing with the New York Philharmonic, and also just days before his 50th birthday, that after a contract on a loan expired. Meanwhile, the Presenda violin played by Alexander Pavlovsky of the Jerusalem Quartet was sold by the syndicate that owns it, which is forcing Pavlovsky to look for another fiddle while he is out on tour. So what do these two cases tell us about the market for rare violins? And is there a case to be made now for modern violins, other than, of course, the case that the violin travels in? Joining us with some perspective are two experts, both on the line from England. Jason Price is the director of the auction house Teresio Fine Instruments and Bows. Ariane Toldis is a writer, editor, and violinist. She is the former editor of the Strad magazine, and she now writes for the website Elbow Music. Violinist Alexander Pavlovsky himself was going to join us, but he came down with laryngitis. Ariane, I'm going to start with you. For the layperson listening to this, how does it work with rare violins? Who usually owns them, and how do performing string players get their paws on them? Well, these days, it's increasingly the case that they don't own them themselves. I mean, there's a Strad, for example, which is considered the best instrument that money can buy. You know, it goes into the millions. So string players generally don't earn that much. I mean, a good soloist can earn quite a lot, but gone are the days when players could actually own their own instruments. So there, there are different ways it happens now. A lot of banks and music museums and foundations own instruments because they can afford to and they either lend out these instruments to players on a kind of long-term basis or sometimes just on a short-term basis. What seems to be increasingly the case now is also syndicates of uh, investors who buy instruments kind of as an investment. You know, often they're philanthropists who feel that they can, or they can do this but also kind of benefit the musicians. Um, so they will create a syndicate, put the money together to buy these expensive instruments and let the player use these instruments. Sometimes the player has to pay a sort of rent on the instrument. They're actually loaning the instrument. So what are the problems that you see with this model? Well, for a good player, uh, the, the relationship with their instrument is a really kind of intense and powerful one. You know, they spend a lot of time and effort and kind of emotional kind of energy finding right instruments for themselves. So when they feel like they've found it... You know, to play on that for five years and to really grow with that instrument for five years and then have it taken away, is, it is like losing a friend, really. That's very hard. So that's one aspect. I mean, the, the, the other aspect is that at the end of the day, they don't really own this instrument. You know, they, they may be paying towards it, but it, it never becomes theirs. And that, it's a difficult situation. Let's take the case of Frank-Peter Zimmermann. How is it that he suddenly found himself without a violin? or what looks like he's going to be without a violin, we don't know yet. Um, We actually reached out to his manager who said talks are still continuing regarding the violin, so Zimmerman prefers to wait wait with interviews until the situation has been fully resolved. But what is going on here? 
the one thing that I think is important to say is that this wasn't a sudden, you know, knock on the door and you open it and the repo man's there. Um, this is something that was arranged, uh, to, as best I understand it, in most most of the syndicate situations it is this way, that this is something which is arranged in advance. You know, all arrangements like this need to have a term. Usually, the artist pushes to have it as long as possible, and that's in everybody's interest that it, it forms a long-term um, relationship because it allows the artist to grow and it allows the the musician to um, have as much stability as possible. But it is a term, and it, it, I, I don't know any arrangement that really can be, you know, uh, completely unended or uh, open-ended. So I, what I understand about the Zimmerman situation in particular was that it was a, it was something that had a, a end time to it. It it had an expiration of term. You are in the business of buying and selling rare instruments. What do you think about this problem that Zimmerman and Pavlovsky are now facing? Well, this is a problem, but I think that's kind of a narrow way of looking at it because the bigger picture is that there are so many incredibly creative solutions that allow the people who are the top of their field to be playing the instruments which are the top instruments. And in the past 20 years, there's there's been an incredible explosion of great ideas on how people who believe in supporting artists, believe in supporting culture, can um, find structures that allow artists and musicians to play on the instruments that they should be playing on. Such as? Uh, um, so these, two in, these two situations in particular are really good ones. Um, there are lots of foundations. There are foundations in Europe and America that um, have put together um, you know, rosters of instruments that they then loan out to um, you know, the most deserving either uh, emerging artists or people in the, at, at the high point of their career. Th- there is a bit of a myth that Stradivarius are, are kept behind glass cases, and there are 600 or 700 of them in the world, and I think the number that are really actually not played is, you know, you could probably count them on a couple hands and a couple feet. Most instruments are played, and it's, it, it's very difficult to argue with, with the laws in supply and de- of supply and demand that have caused prices to rise as they have. Well, speaking of prices rising, you conducted the the sale of the Lady Blunt Stradivarius in 2011, which went for nearly $16 million, which was a record at the time. Yeah, that was a a really interesting sale. But, you know, one fabulous thing that happened for me before that was the night before that that auction happened, I was one of my mentors in the business told me I should have two worries. They told me, one, I should worry that the violin sells for too little. And two, I should worry that the violin sells for too much. And at the time, I thought, you know, what does this mean? How, why should we be worried? And then it dawned on me, this is really important that this is a market of slow, steady growth, that this is a market that doesn't have these crazy spikes and crazy falls, that this is something which is a steady investment market, which doesn't go up too high, doesn't go up too far, but it's very reliable. So that was sold by the Nippon Music Foundation and bought by? An anonymous collector. So therein lies the rub. A lot of the buyers are anonymous. What do they do with the instruments then? Most people find a way to loan them out to put them in use. The Lady Blunt's a little bit of a special case in that it's you know, top three in the world in terms of preservation. And in one sense, it's a good thing that it's, um, you know, it's kept for future generations without, in as pure of a state as can be. But you know, there, are very, there are a handful of, of instruments that should be protected like that. And for no other reason that the modern makers of today and the modern makers of tomorrow need to have examples that they can work from, that they can see how the classic Italian makers made things 400 years ago. Well, that brings me to the question of modern instruments. 
Of course, old instruments have this mystique. 60 Minutes recently did a major story about that. But do they really sound better, or is it just the mystique? Well, it's complicated. The, the various blind tests that get done regularly, and when I was at the Strad, you know, these go back way back into the 1890s, that actually most audiences really can't tell the difference between Strads and modern instruments. But, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that Strads aren't better. But if you don't have a trained ear, most people really don't necessarily tell the difference. Do audience re- audiences desperately want to know that they're hearing a Stradivarius, or can they just be hearing they, a really I, good violin? I think this is one of the problems, is that for young players, if they can say they have a Strad in, on their biography, it gives them a sort of status, and that audiences respond to that. You know, whether unconsciously or consciously, um, it kind of gives, in their eyes, the players a, specific, a, a kind of certain status. So that you get this vicious circle where players want to have that kind of mark of quality. Audiences expect it, and therefore if they see a name that they don't know in the biography, you know, it's kind of like a question mark over the player. And I think for me that's, the, that's really the vicious circle that we need to really change. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think one of the biggest problems is, is that th- there is this presumed linear gradient of good, better, best, um, that somehow there's a there's something that can be universally recognized as better sound, and it's it's kind of like discovering you know dis- discussing in, um, artwork. You would never walk into a museum and say, well, a, a, a Jackson Pollock is just inherently better than a Rembrandt. It's just it's apples and oranges to a certain degree. And some people like Coke, some people like Pepsi. But everybody likes to see the name Strad, I guess. Correct. However, there's some artists that have made incredible careers playing on non-Strads. It's not a requirement. It's really not. It's a choice. Hilary Hahn has made an amazing career playing on a Viom. You've got Christian Tetzlaff, who is about is, to mention him. Yes, <laughs> plays a you know plays a modern violin made ten years ago by a great German maker. You've got a, a maker in Brooklyn which makes some of the best violins on the planet. It's not a requirement that you play an old Italian instrument. There are reasons why people do, but there's some great, amazing-sounding modern instruments, too. When you're auctioning off a Strad, what is making the prices go so high, and what is making these instruments seem so irresistible to buyers? Well, you know, a lot of it is a supply and demand issue. It's the market as it is has expanded tremendously in the past 30 years with Asia becoming a massive force, some pockets of new wealth bringing in new new buyers and new people who want to um, participate in this. And the number of players playing at a high level is better now than it's ever been before. Um, there are more conservatories churning out uh, amazingly talented um, players than ever before. And so it's just simply a supply and demand issue that makes these prices rise. Ariane? I think that's, that's also true. I think we, we should also think about the, you know, the, the Strad and Del Jesu are the, at the top. There's also the fact that the violins at the next tiers down are also now becoming unaffordable for, for players. In fact, um, Pavlovsky, I think, played the Pacenda, is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Um, you know, it's now very difficult even to get in at that level. Yeah. Um, all, all these kind of good, good old Italian instruments are kind of being priced out and at that level also you know maybe that they're not even as good as you know a modern instrument for the same price for the value you get for the same price i I think there's been an incredible renaissance of uh, of new making in the past 20 30 years it is amazing the level of new violin making that's happening if you are uh if you're a young performer if you're a young orchestral musician with a new job you can find an amazing sounding instrument from a new maker Can I just ask, with the rise in prices at these auctions, 
Is there ever a sense that some of these buyers, these instruments are going into the wrong hands, people who don't have a sense of stewardship for these instruments? That's obviously a problem in any market, and we it's really our responsibility to educate people and make sure that we are growing a community that cares about the music, cares about the players, cares about the instruments, and wants all of those, those parts of it to be healthy and happy. Should there be more public accountability with so many instruments going into anonymous hands? Um, well, the, one, one interesting <laughs> consequence of the digital age is that there are fewer anonymous hands than ever before. The places where that have been the most active buyers of musical instruments in the past 10, 20 years are very known entities, and they're very public with their, what they own and what they do with them. There are Scandinavian foundations, there are Asian foundations, there are North American foundations, and you can look on their website and see what they own, and you can see who's currently playing it. Um, and that's nice. That's really nice. Ariane, as a violinist, what do you say to so many of these instruments going into hands of non-violinists as owners? I think it's sad in some ways. I mean, it, it, again, it depends on who the owners are. I think if a museum or a foundation is going to look after it well and, and understand the needs of the, the player as well as the kind of needs of history, then, you know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. I think if you get syndicates that think of these investments in a really short-term sort of way and that they're thinking of them as investments rather than as kind of philanthropic ways to help musicians and, to, sure. and they, if they don't understand that relationship between the musician and the instrument, then I think it's not, it's not so good. Very true. So I have one last question for both of you. What advice would you give to a virtuoso that has his or her heart set on a Strad or a Guarneri today? How can they avoid getting into the same kind of situation that Zimmerman and Pavlovsky have found themselves in? Well, I, I would argue that actually the, it's the virtuosos who, you know, who play so beautifully. And for Frank Peter Zimmerman is just such a fantastic player. He can make any instrument sound fantastic. So I think for a player like that to really take the bold decision to play a good modern instrument, I think would send out really fantastic signals to the rest of the music world. I mean, we see it with Tetzlav, you know, and Hilary Hahn, they're often used as examples. But the fact is they're fantastic players who sound fantastic on any instrument they play, and their musicianship does not suffer in any way from it. Jason? I agree. I think owning something of your own that you can rely on and you can grow with is a very important thing. And um, I think it's great that structures exist that can loan great virtuosos a great instrument. I think it's also good when that person has their own instrument that they can fall back on or rely on or have through their entire career as a part of them. Well, thank you both very much for your insights. Thank you, Nimit. Thank you. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests were music writer and violinist Ariane Todas and Jason Price, who is head of Teresa Auctions. Brian Weiss is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening.